welcome to the Arcananth podcast. It's your host, Michael, here again, and this is the podcast all about anthropology, biology, and today the animals that are the most closely related to humans, namely the primates. Our guest today is a great expert in primate biology, behavior, and conservation, and her name is Dr. Erin Kane. Erin, are you there? I am here. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing very well also because the podcast is uh, very busy and recording a lot of interviews, but I I really enjoy talking to all these different experts. That's great. It's such a cool thing that you get to do and that you've started and given a a really amazing resource for the general public. I use it for teaching. So yeah, I'm really impressed. (laughs) That's really nice to hear. (laughs) Um, I never know who's listening out there. You know, I don't get a lot of... It's on my app. I download it every week. So. Oh, okay. Well, that's awesome. Um, and, and where are you calling in from today, Erin? So I'm currently in Boston. Um, I'm at work in my lab in the interior room of the basement of an older building on Boston University's campus. Oh, okay. Uh, and have you always been working in Boston? <laughs> no. So I am in the middle of my third year of my postdoc here at Boston University. Um, I did my undergrad research or my undergrad degree at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, and then I went to grad school at the Ohio State University. Mm-hmm. So in in our previous um, in our previous episodes, I've I've interviewed some um, researchers who are looking at things like primate evolution, um, primate biology, and behavior. And uh, I know that you're a primatologist as well. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, what is it about our primate family that makes them such an important area of research in biological anthropology? So the way that people are always like, wait. I thought anthropologists study people. Why are you studying monkeys in an anthropology department? Mm -hmm. Um, And the way that I like to kind of explain it or express it is, um, so anthropology is all about context and putting humans in a broader context. So archaeologists put human behavior and anatomy and and things in a temporal context. Cultural anthropologists put them in a cross-cultural, really comparative context. And so as a primatologist, I like to think that I put humans in a biological context. So by understanding the behavior and ecology and anatomy and et cetera, et cetera, of our closest living relatives, um, it's cool for a bunch of reasons because we can use that information to look at what modern humans are doing and get a sense of sort of the breadth of um, all of the ways that an ancient primate can turn into a modern organism and think about the sort of selective pressures that might have acted on our ancestors as we were developing into modern humans or as the ancestors of chimps were developing into chimps or Diana monkeys developing into Diana monkeys. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also really like that um, so most of the time when people are interpreting fossil material, we're, you know, looking at bone. Um, sometimes if we're lucky, we're looking at teeth and bone and multiple bones, but you have nothing to go by but these physical remains. And so we're able to use the living primates as analogies to help understand um, kind of what our primate ancestors were doing along this process of evolution. Definitely. And I was wondering, like, where, where did you first um, learn that primatology was such a interesting field that puts humans in context? Like, how did you first get started studying primates? Was it during your undergraduate degree? No. So I'm actually one of those, um, I guess it's sort of a stereotype of, of primatological women. But when I was in seventh grade, um, when I was 13, my dad gave me a copy of Jane Goodall's book, In the Shadow of Man. Mm. 
and I read it and I was like, oh, okay, that's what I'm going to be when I grow up. Cool. Um, and so for the past um, 18 years, which is horrifying to say, um, <laughs> I've been <laughs> working towards being a primatologist and, you know, whether that was, you know, sitting and watching gorillas in the mist and sobbing because of how dramatic and sad it was or studying French and learning Swahili in college or, you know, doing everything I could to make sure that I would set myself up to be able to go work on primates. I was about to ask you, like, you know, did it require lots of training and, and learning, uh, learning new skills in order to, you know, enter this sort of field? Yeah, I think um, I've been... I was lucky in that I would, I like knew exactly what I wanted to do. And so I was able to take advantage of a lot of really cool experiences um, during college. So one thing that I think is really important, I am a, a field primatologist. So I do my research in other countries where there are primates living in the wild. Um, and with any sort of, um, you know, American or white European researcher going off to um, other countries that tend to be um, poor or tend to be, they have a, a colonial past. There's just, there's a, a long history, I think, of sort of colonial exploitation of other countries in the name of preserving wildlife. And there's a, you see a lot of people mm -hmm. Historically, and even to some extent today, who go into a country to study the animals, to protect the animals, and have no idea where they are, what the cultural context of where they're working is. And so I was able to get, you know, I knew that I wouldn't have a, a problem learning the science and like figuring out how you go and do field work. But what I wanted to make really sure that I took advantage of was being able to learn as much as I could about the places where I was doing work and learn the languages of the places where I work and learn about mm -hmm. the history and the, the context, the political context, so that when I go somewhere, it's not, you know, I'm just, I'm not just parachuting in to stare at some monkeys and then disappearing. Um, I think that's a really important part of primatology. And it's one of the things that I really love about it. Um, and so in addition to, like I said, learning to do hormone analysis and go out and conduct solid field work, I also have devoted a lot of time and effort to studying history and studying languages and keeping track of, you know, political movements and things like that in the places where I work. Yeah. And in all this training and, and you know, picking up new knowledge and skills, you know, what would you describe as being perhaps the most challenging part about about learning how to do field primatology? So the biggest, the like the thing that's, I think, scientifically the most complicated about field primatology is that you start out, you know, as you know, you have a whole bunch of hypotheses when you start doing your research. Mm -hmm. um, and my impression, and this might not be true, but my impression for people who are working in like skeletal collections or, um, you know, you have a, a stronger sense of what you will find when you get somewhere and exactly what data you'll be able to collect. Um, and doing observational field primatology, I don't really do experimental research. Um, I get into the forest and I cross my fingers that I'll see enough of the thing I think I'm trying to study to be able to like mm -hmm. say something scientific about it, but there's really no guarantee. So 
the whole process of fieldwork can be really um, disorienting and a little bit like scary from a scientific perspective because you just have no idea if you'll actually get the data that you you're trying to get. So like, for example, during my dissertation research, one of the things that I wanted to study was um, like the energy impact of reproduction and nursing. So are females that have babies that are nursing more stressed than females that don't have nursing babies? Mm-hmm. And I was all set to go out into the forest for a year and I only had three babies born that year. And one of them died the day it was born. <laughs> um, which was very sad for the baby and the monkeys. It was very sad, but also I was like, oh no, there goes that piece of my dissertation. I guess that hypothesis just won't be testable. Right. Um, So there's a lot of kind of flexibility that you have to have. On the other hand, you get to see all sorts of crazy, interesting things that you never really can predict that you'll see. So, you know, predation attempts or um, chimpanzees hunting or, you know, just a lot of things happen that you didn't really plan for. And so it's a, a kind of science where you always have to be sort of on your toes and ready to pick up on whatever threads start to become apparent. Mm-hmm. And so in that example, how did you, uh, you know, what did you do next? Like once you, you realized that you couldn't um, <laughs> uh, do the question that you really wanted to look at in the first place? So you, in the course of data collection, um you collect a lot of data um, on a variety of things and you sort of, so you have, you know, targeted, it would be great if I can collect this data on, you know, nursing rates, for example. Well, there's nobody nursing. So instead I'll take data, you know, I can look at proximity or I can look at grooming. And so there's always something else going on in a group, even if it's not what you're expecting to see, you just have to have an open enough mind Mm-hmm. to be able to look beyond the variables that you think you're interested in and make sure that you're collecting good systematic data about a whole variety of things. Yeah. You know, as I understand it, there are many, many primate species that exist today. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them, you know, existed before and they're now extinct, you know, and some of them are monkeys. Some of them are uh, what we call apes in science. Some of them even falling outside these categories compared to like other animal families. Do you view it as, um, do you view the number of primate species as like particularly high? There, there are some like compared to amphibians, compared to like frogs, for example, there are like three monkeys. <laughs> compared to um, But I think, yeah, I mean, we're um, primates are a very, very well-studied group of organisms comparatively. And so there's a lot of attention to taxonomy mm-hmm. um, and kind of picking up on where you see species differences based on things like vocalizations that you might not otherwise see. Um, the So in general, I think primates are a good an interesting radiation. They're an interesting sort of array of different species doing similar but kind of different things um, in similar but kind of different environments. Mm -hmm. So they're a cool group of organisms to study from that perspective, because even if you can't do, you know, it's a lot harder to get permission to do experiments on primates than it is to do on something like salamanders. or, you know, people can misnet bats without too much trouble. And you have to work a lot harder to get permission to capture um, monkeys, for example, mm-hmm. um, or orangutans. <laughs> um, but because we have such um, 
kind of good representation across a bunch of slightly different environments, you can do a lot of natural experimental work with primates. Um, and I'm sure that there are other groups of organisms that you can do similar research with, but primates are cool because we're so plastic and we're so intelligent. We can, we meaning the primates can like adapt behaviorally to a bunch of different environments without necessarily having to adapt in an evolutionary sense. And so you get a, a good sense of the ways that intelligence help organisms kind of cope with variation in their environment. Right. And, and, you know, like the greater regulations uh, surrounding working with primates, it's, it's probably a product of them being closely related to us and very like, um, mm -hmm. you know, they resemble us in many ways. Yeah. Charismatic, um, also pretty large bodied. Um, so like one of my, my undergraduate supervisor, um, Tab Rasmussen used to tell a story about, um, helping somebody who was trying to dart howler monkeys. Mm -hmm. And so they would like, the howler monkeys were up in trees, so they would dart them. And the howler monkeys would eventually pass out. And Tab's job was to like run and try to catch the howler monkeys as they <laughs> fell from the tree to make sure they didn't like splat on the ground. Right. So there are problems, there are things like that, that you don't necessarily have to worry about, mm -hmm. like trapping ground dwelling animals, for example. Mm -hmm. And and so, uh, what are some of the questions that you are trying to look at now? I, I know that you are um, looking at orangutans mm -hmm. in Indonesia. So the big questions that I'm interested in are understanding the ways that environmental variability shapes primate behavior and anatomy, um, and health and ecology. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but basically, I want to understand how how changes in the environment affect primates in a variety of different ways. Um, and so for my dissertation research, I was looking at this in sort of a, a normal, quote unquote, normal tropical rainforest where you have sort of predictable changes in things like rainfall and fruit availability over the course of a year. Um, and so what I was able to do there was look at how um, Diana monkeys were, you know, how their diets were shifting as different kinds of fruit became available. I was looking at how stressed they were at different times of the year. Um, and so that was cool because it gave this sort of annual picture of the, the kind of normal range of variation that an organism copes with. Um, with orangutans, um, we're asking a similar kind of question, trying to understand how environmental variability has shaped orangutan life history. Mm -hmm. um, but orangutans live in an, a very unique environment um, for primates. And so the, the magnitude of variability they have to cope with is really different. Mm -hmm. Orangutans live in um, Southeast Asia, in Indonesia, and in Malaysia on these islands of Borneo and Sumatra. Um, and the rainforests there are dominated by a few families of trees that don't produce fruit in sort of a typical annual cycle. Mm. Um, instead, they do what's called mast fruit production, where all of the trees in the forest or the majority of the trees in the forest will produce fruit at once for like three months. And then for some period of time, none of them will produce fruit. So could be a year, could be three years, could be somewhere in between. Um, but there's really no way to predict it. Mm -hmm. um, and so this means that if you are becoming a 
gigantic orangutan adult. Um, You are growing and developing in an environment where you have no guarantee and your, your ancestors evolutionarily had no guarantee how much fruit would be available for you to eat, to grow and develop tomorrow or next year, right? So it's a totally different environmental constraint because there's no sort of predictability to the ways that the environment um, is shifting and the things that are available. Mm-hmm. So my postdoc supervisor, Cheryl Knott, has been working here since, or working at the forest where I'm doing my postdoctoral research um, since the mid-90s. Um, and what we're working on is trying to understand why orangutans have really long childhoods. Hmm. So primates in general have really long childhoods compared to most organisms. <laughs> Um, And orangutans have the longest period between births of any mammal. Um, So somewhere between seven and nine years is a typical period between births. Um, And a lot of times when we try to explain why primates have such long childhoods, we talk about our complex social system and we talk about, you know, how you have to figure out dominance hierarchies and things like that. But orangutans are essentially solitary. So most of the time, a baby orangutan mm-hmm. is moving around the forest with its mother and it'll run into other orangutans intermittently. Um, but it's not the same sort of complex social system as like a baby yeah. baboon has to cope with or a baby chimpanzee, but they have even longer childhoods. So the hypothesis that we're testing is that these really, really long periods of development are actually an adaptation to those really unpredictable forests. Um, and so if you have seven years to go from being an adorable, absurd-looking baby orangutan to being like a full-grown adult-sized orangutan, um, you're guaranteed like one or two at most, or at least one or two periods of um, high fruit productivity. And so you can take in lots and lots of excess calories during that time, and you're not going to get so big that you starve when there is a period without very much fruit available. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was already known about them and what did you hope to to add to the already existing knowledge? So orangutans are one of, it's cool working on orangutans coming from a group of monkeys that people don't really study very much. Um, so orangutans have been very, very well studied um, by Indonesian researchers, by Malaysian researchers. Um, and there's a giant, there's a big group um, from Zurich, especially folks working with Carol Van Schaik and Maria Van Nordwick. There's a couple of different um, professors in the United States, like Aaron Vogel and my, my mm-hmm. PhD supervisor, who've been working together to study orangutans. And the, the amazing thing that they've done is they've actually standardized methodology across mm. research sites. Um, so it's, it's explicitly comparative, which is really cool. Um, it's not competitive in the ways that a lot of, or that some primate research can be, where you're trying to like show that your, you know, monkeys are better and doing more interesting things and your theories are correct compared to the people studying them in a different rainforest. Um, so what that means is there's like 40 years of solid comparable data about Mm -hmm. orangutan behavior. Um, the, the challenge, I think, about studying orangutans, there are two main challenges. One is because they're solitary, they're not group living, you can only follow one individual at a time, right? right? You can only see what that one individual is doing, as opposed to if you're studying, say, chimpanzees, maybe you see seven or eight 
or 30 <laughs> individuals in a single day. So you can get a lot more data a lot more quickly. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that orangutans live really, really, really long lives. And because they have such a, a long childhood and a long period between births, um, 40 years is actually, you know, well within the lifespan of a single orangutan. We're still in some cases studying the first or maybe the second generation of orangutans that people have ever studied. Um, so while we know a lot about some things about orangutans, trying to tease out these answers to questions about life history and evolutionary strategies are really hard in such a long-lived animal. Mm -hmm. What I was really hoping um, and what I think is going to come out of this, this project is we're getting really interesting data that looks at how mothers and their offspring behave and the ways that they're digesting and the sort of nutrients that they're taking in and how mothers handle periods of time when there's not a lot of fruit compared to how babies are handling it. Hmm. And so this, this comparison is going to let us understand, um, you know, how, adults have evolved to cope with these things and also strategies that juveniles have evolved mm -hmm. um, to cope with, with this sort of, you know, time when all there is to eat is bark <laughs> or um, leaves or termite mounds. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that's cool about the particular forest where I do my postdoctoral research, this is Gunung Palong National Park in um, the Western part of Borneo. And it's a fairly pristine um, primary rainforest. So there's really, really high canopy. There hasn't been much logging. There's not a lot of hunting pressure. Um, and there are a bunch of different habitats that are only, we only study orangutans in those habitats in this forest. A lot of the other research that's been done on orangutans is in secondary forest or more disturbed forest, places where you have peat swamp instead of like really tall forest canopy. And so it's a, just a different environment mm -hmm. to understand orangutans. And it probably reflects um, sort of the environment that orangutans evolved in more than some of the kind of secondary or peat swampy forests where we know a lot of really great things mm -hmm. about orangutans, but not... So, so this just offers an opportunity to look at kind of a different evolutionary perspective. Mm -hmm. And so how, how are you collecting uh, data about orangutan um, feeding ecology? Um, we, we had another guest, uh, Michelle Rodriguez, on episode, I want to say 48. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if you're looking at nutrition and digestion, I feel I already know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Are, are you suggesting that poop science might, might come back <laughs> to haunt you? There's a lot of poop science um, in anthropology. <laughs> and um, yeah, is that is that what you're doing as well? So that's part of it for sure. So I should say most of my postdoc is actually based in the United States. Um, we have an amazing, amazing field team in Indonesia. So there's um, six Indonesians who are out in the forest collecting data who are employed by the project sort of long term. Um, and then we have some PhD students from the United States and some other sort of Indonesian and American and European researchers who are working there now. So most of what I'm doing is just sort of collating the data that they're collecting um, and using that to understand mm -hmm. what's going on. I've only got, I don't get to spend a whole lot of time in the forest right now, unfortunately. Um, but the sorts of data that we're collecting. So every day when you're out with the orangutans, you wake up some around three and hike out to where they slept the previous night. Orangutans build nests so you can go to their nest. 
um, and then you follow them until they go to bed sometime if they're nice like by five <laughs> sometimes a little earlier sometimes yeah. they're not so nice and they don't fall asleep until six thirty or seven and then you're hiking back in the dark too mm. um but basically so the way we collect our data every five minutes we take like a data point that says what the orangutan is doing what they're eating where they are in a tree um, how they're behaving, a whole bunch of other things. And then we also take sort of continuous data. So every time their behavior changes. So if they're resting for 15 minutes, then on the 16th minute they start to walk, then we would note that. And then as you suspect, um, we are collecting urine and feces. Um, so you can get so many amazing things from urine and feces. Um, it's, it, uh, People just don't appreciate it enough, Michael. I'm sorry. It's really, really awesome. It makes sense. Like if you if you want to study their diets, that is right. their diet. So one of the ways that we study diet is by looking at exactly what they put in their mouth. So like counting individual mm -hmm. like numbers of leaves. Um, one of the things that I'm really interested in specifically is how babies learn how to eat these really challenging, complicated foods like durian or... Um, the inside of tree bark or the, you know things that aren't really easy and obvious. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I'm doing is actually counting the number of chewing cycles. So every time an orangutan puts a piece of food in their mouth, how many times do they chew it with their incisors? How many times do they chew it with their molars? Um, and so that's one way that we're able to kind of see how like chewing efficiency, how, how hard they have to work to eat a food. Yeah. Um, but you can also get that information if you look at fecal particle size. So the, the way that works is the smaller you break foods down, the smaller the particles that you have kind of going through your digestive tract, the more surface area there is for your digestive juices to act on them. And so you can look mm -hmm. at um, fecal particle size um, of sort of what comes out the other end and get a sense of how efficiently those foods were chewed and digested. Um, we're also looking at things like seed dispersal and gut passage rates. So looking at how seeds travel through the gut, whether they are digested or chewed or if they're coming out whole and then they're germinating afterwards. Um, right. We're also looking at fiber digestibility. So you can actually take feces and do um, some chemical analysis on it and see how much undigested fiber is left. So we're comparing um, mm -hmm. how much fiber is in mother's feces compared to their offspring's feces because we assume or we predict that, that adults are going to be better able to digest fiber because um, they have such bigger guts. Um, compared to juveniles. Mm -hmm. um, and then we're also, so I always wanted to have monkey urine when I was doing my dissertation because um, there's mm -hmm. just so much cool stuff you can get from urine that you can't get from feces. Um, so one of the things that my supervisor actually sort of piloted was using um, like the same sort of urine test strips that you can use for humans um, to look at orangutan urine. And so you can see like... Mm -hmm. What's their urinary pH? Are there ketones present? Um, how, like, is there evidence of blood in the urine? And so it's a, like a simple way to sort of look at overall health mm -hmm. and energy balance. Um, you can also look at reproductive hormones and stress hormones in the urine. So we do that. And urinary C-peptides. So insulin, 
produced by your body to process or to help metabolize different foods. And it reflects Mm -hmm. kind of intake of energy and metabolism of energy. And so insulin breaks down, among other things, into these C-peptides, which are excreted or secreted rather at a sort of constant rate into the urine. And so you can look at the amount of urinary C-peptides in a given urine sample and kind of tell how um, Hmm. energy stressed or how energy like you can, you can see their energy balance, basically. So are they taking in more calories than they need? Are they building up their fat stores? Or are they actually depleting their body's fat stores? Um, and so all of that you can get just mm-hmm. from feces and urine. And we collect that. Basically, you toss a tarp under their nest mm-hmm. um, and they pee first thing they wake up in the morning. And so you can just pipette it off of the tarp. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that previously you had worked uh, with uh, different monkey species. Mm-hmm. How does the experience compare of um, studying orangutans? Uh, um, so it's really different. Um, I I loved the monkeys that I was working with in the Ivory Coast. They're um, they're beautiful. They're really really interesting. They're really smart. They live in these. Um, they live in big, relatively big groups. Um, they're in polyspecific associations all the time. So they're in association with multiple species. Um, so you'll see Diana monkeys with a whole bunch of other different monkeys and they like hmm. vocalize and respond to each other's alarm calls. Um, so it's like, there's always something going on. <laughs> Even if, you know, your monkeys are taking a nap, there's like baby red columnists hmm. who are chasing each other over there or something like that. Orangutans are totally different. Um, because, like I said, they're they're semi-solitary. Most of the yeah. time, they're moving around in the forest by themselves. Um, and so you spend a lot of time just watching orangutans sit and, like, take a nap for a while and then move to the next tree and eat some fruit and then take a nap right. and sit for a while. <laughs> um, and so, so I confess that the data collection on the orangutans is not my favorite. Um, but the data that you get from them is really, really, really interesting. Um, the thing that I found weirdest, so Diana monkeys are like the size of a, a solid cat, like maybe an overweight cat. Um, but they are constantly making noise. And so if you are looking for the group when you wake up in the morning and you hike out to the forest, you can hear them from like, you know, probably a mile away is exaggerating, but you can hear them from like, a couple hundred meters away. It's obvious where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, the orangutans are so quiet. Sometimes you hear males make these really long calls called loud calls. Um, but other than that, they're just, you have to listen for the sound of them either moving or the sound of them dropping food. And the number of times that I've been like, there's something wrestling in that tree. It must be an orangutan and found a squirrel is like truly Mm -hmm. depressing. (laughs) (laughs) I spent almost two weeks in the forest spending a solid eight hours a day walking around trying to find orangutans before I found my first orangutan. Mm I was like, what's happening? You know, why are there so many squirrels in this forest, first of all? And second of all, why am I so bad at this? It was like, it was very demoralizing, but it's just because orangutans are really quiet. They're big, Mm -hmm. but they're not moving very quickly and they're not moving very much. Mm -hmm. Um, And er earlier when you're... um... 
uh, this is going to be a, a little bit of a, a tangent, but uh, I um, when you, earlier when you were mentioning how you were um, taking observations of what the orangutans are doing mm-hmm. at regular time intervals, mm-hmm. you know, taking notes of what you observe about their behavior, it actually reminded me a lot about uh, my my father's job oh, as yeah? a private investigator. Oh, cool! <laughs> and he does surveillance of other humans uh-huh. and. Um, uh, you know, you're 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 like a PI, but you're <laughs> observing like or- orangutans. <laughs> yeah, no. Sometimes it, it can feel a little invasive. Like so, the way that we identified the female Diana monkeys in my um, the groups that I was studying was based. So babies will usually choose one side or the other to nurse on. Yeah. Um, and so nipple shape and size was the easiest way for me to tell the females apart. Um, and mm-hmm. then sometimes you could tell by their like tail, if it was like curling in a particular way or like fluffier at the end. Um, but when I, I collected fecal samples from the Diana monkeys as well. And so mm-hmm. I spent like a full year just staring really intently at monkey chests and monkey butts, trying like waiting to see if somebody would poop and then making sure I knew who it was. <laughs> <laughs> And then right. I was like, well, I guess this is science. This is very serious, you know, high level stuff that I'm doing. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm also curious about how, um, so how do they get into tree bark or uh, into one of my favorite fruits, the durian, mm-hmm. which is um, for anyone who doesn't know, is this really uh, large, uh, spiky, um, it doesn't look like something that you're supposed to eat. Right. <laughs> <laughs> once you get into it, there is this really... Um, like really soft fleshy fruit inside that's kind of yellow in color and a lot of people um around the world even in even in southeast asia or east asia where it's commonly eaten think that it is too smelly to eat or too strong a taste to to even consume i'm I'm so curious about how these uh, orangutans are eating durian yeah so they have their jaws are intense like they are, they're incredibly, incredibly powerful. And so I don't know how they handle the spikes because I feel like the spikes would be really unpleasant to bite into. Yeah. Um, but they just like, I've never seen, I know that females eat durian, but I've never seen it. I've only seen the males actually eating it, you know, in person. Um, but they just like stick their teeth in and then sort of yank down with their hands and yank back with their jaws and crack it open. Wow. Um, but so when I was in Indonesia most recently, it was um, peak durian fruiting in the forest. Mm-hmm. And so we would get into the forest and we were actually, we could find orangutans really consistently because you could just like stand and sniff for a little bit. Like, all right, there's durian over there. And we go there, we'll- <laughs> Someone's opened one. Yeah. And so we would like walk to where the durian smell was coming from. And usually we would see an orangutan. Right. So we would be, you know, a lot of times the, the durian will like fall on the floor unopened. And so the field assistants that I was working with all had um, machetes with them or parangs. And so they, they would open up a durian and we would sit and eat durian while the orangutans were sitting above us eating durian. It was like very companionable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, I guess, you know, they're not going to make uh, very vocal calls and not going to move very quickly, but at least you can still track them through this durian. Exactly. Thing. At least, you know, <laughs> intermittently while it's, while it's producing fruit. But I actually, I am um, the, the durian in the city was not, I, I, 
don't mind it, but I wouldn't go out of my way to eat it necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, But the durian in the forest is like, it's not domesticated, I guess. It's, it's slightly different and it, I really, really liked it. I liked it. It was was very tasty. Yeah. And and I'm just trying to think about it. Uh, Like the spikes, um, from my experience, they're like about, uh, I don't know, a centimeter ish Mm -hmm. spikes. Yeah. And how, how large are like the largest orangutan teeth in their mouths? Um, they are probably, com- well, so the males have canines that are slightly bigger, but they're probably, at least in terms of height, they're comparable. Yeah. And they're, yeah. and also when they hold them, you know, maybe the skin on their hands is thicker, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I think it is. Because um, their, their hands are really calloused from swinging around and climbing mm-hmm. around in trees all the time. Mm-hmm. And so um, earlier you were talking about how, you know, it can be quite unpredictable. Before you go out, I, I presume a lot of the time it involves uh, giving a research proposal to mm-hmm. your university or the person that uh, people that you're working for. Um, maybe you want to apply for some grants in order to fund your trip. How do you put in a proposal something that is, um, you know, a set question, not knowing that, you know, not knowing whether or not you're you're going to be able to find uh, very specific things that you want to study. That is the question, right? What um, happens like when you have to, when you go out there and you realize, uh oh, I'm not going to be able to <laughs> tell my funding body <laughs> or perhaps the lab that right. I'm working for that I got what they wanted. So one thing that you do is look for multiple lines of evidence for every hypothesis that you have. Um, mm-hmm. So, for example, one of the hypotheses for this postdoc project is that um, adult females will or adults are going to be digesting um, foods more effectively than juveniles. So we're looking at that in terms of oral processing behavior. So how they're like actively chewing the foods. We're looking mm-hmm. at that in terms of fecal particle size and that at that in terms of how much fiber is in their feces. We're looking at that in terms of how long beans stay in their gut. So, um, and we're looking at um, energy balance in adults and juveniles over the same period of time, right? So it's entirely possible that, you know, I won't be able to figure out, you know, how long gut passages in adults versus juveniles. But it's okay because I've got these other four different pieces of things that help to answer the same question. Um, so mm-hmm. I think the really important thing is having sort of complementary ways to answer a question. Um, mm-hmm. And you might not be able to fully answer a question. You're constrained by the data that you're able to collect. You're constrained by, you know, can you get urine? You're constrained by, are your dietary samples going to mold? Um, yeah. Are ants going to get into them, right? There are all sorts of things. But if you collect sort of a plethora of information, you can at least start to answer some of the questions that you're asking. Um, and mm-hmm. so we're never getting like complete, beautiful, well-rounded answers to every single hypothesis. But we're, you know, chipping away and, and starting to build up a body of evidence that answers some of these fundamental questions. Mm-hmm. And I suppose... Um you know, this sort of flexibility and having this sort of approach to designing your research. Uh, these are sorts of the tips that you're, you're going to give to um, any young scientists who are hoping to become primatologists, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's really easy to have a, a picture of a, you know, 
Jane Goodall marches off to the forest and comes back with answers to the questions she was asking. But in actuality, it's like a much longer and messier and kind of more contentious process. Um, yeah. But that's what makes it fun also, because it, it's not predictable. You never know what you're going to see when you leave the camp in the morning. Mm-hmm. Are um, you are you teaching lots of um, junior scientists at the moment? Um, I'm trying to. So a significant amount of the work that I'm doing in my postdoc is mentoring um, and supervising undergraduate research in the lab. Mm-hmm. So we have a nutritional um, lab here where we're looking at, um, I've had students who look at condensed tannins, which are like plant secondary compounds that make plants bitter and kind of difficult to digest. Um, I've had students who've looked at protein. I've had students who looked at fiber and and carbohydrate concentration. And so they get a sense of sort of the hands-on laboratory Mm -hmm. side of things. Um, I worked with some Indonesian undergraduate students while I was in the field um, who were collecting data for their honors thesis in um, the forest. Yeah. So I I would love, my like long-term goal is to have you know, students that I can bring out to collect research with me. Um, I think that field work is, I mean, field work is really my favorite part of mm-hmm. being a primatologist. I love being out in the middle of the forest and just like, you know, like everything, it can get tedious. Um, you know, it's it's amazing how quickly amazing things start to become really mundane. But every now and then you like, you know, you get woken up by Gibbons duet calling first thing in the morning, or like mm-hmm. you see seven species of monkey and it's not even 9 a.m. You're like, oh, right. right, this is incredible. This is really cool. <laughs> like, yes, you know, my feet are molding and I'm getting bitten by bugs and I'm sleepy and whatever. But like, actually, this is really awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Do you think that uh, one day you would like to, you know, maybe write some sort of book or memoir about like your experiences as a field primatologist, kind of like Jane Goodall, who inspired you in the first place? <laughs> um, I think that there are a lot of people with more interesting stories than me <laughs> when it comes to their like field stories. But I do really, so I really love teaching um, and I really love being able so. I think there are a lot of people who think that something like what I do is cool, but it's out of their reach. It's out of sort of the realm of possibility. Um, And so being able to like, you know, I feel like I'm a pretty basic, normal, like generic American, whatever white person. Um, I don't seem like I'm somebody who does particularly adventurous things. I'm not like particularly rugged. (laughs) Um, and so when I can get up in front of, you know, the class of freshmen or speak to a bunch of like eighth graders and be like, yeah, you know, 15 years ago, I was sitting in the same middle school classroom and then I went off to the middle of the rainforest. Like that's like, I like the idea that, that because I'm sort of not all that, um, I don't know. My parents aren't like crocodile wrestlers or something, right? right. Um, and so it's something that like it's much more accessible than people think. Is I think the point that I'm trying to get across. Um, yeah. My undergraduate supervisor taught the first primate behavior class I ever took, and our final project for that class was putting together um, like a field bibliography. So basically, use like 
you don't need to have all the details of your project, but like imagine if you were gonna go do a, a research project on some primate, where would you go? What permits would you need? How mm -hmm. would you fly to this field site? Like once you get into the country, can you take a boat? Like how do you get to the actual forest? And I realized that I could fly from my hometown in New Hampshire to Brazzaville in the Republic of Congo for like $1,500. And my mind just like, like I could feel it expanding. Like the fact that that mm -hmm. was possible was so cool. Um, yeah. And so, so I've benefited over the course of my career from really supportive and proactive mentors who saw that I was excited and who saw that especially in like middle school and high school are like wait a minute this is a 13 year old girl who wants to grow up to be a scientist like let's do everything we can to make this a reality um and so i think i've been really privileged in the fact that i've always had people supporting and advocating for me and so mm -hmm. i think i would really i really hope that i'm able to and i i hopefully have been doing the same sort of thing where i see that there are students who are excited and i'm able to kind of, I don't know, bump them up a step or introduce them to somebody who can facilitate sort of their next move to make what they want to do mm -hmm. more possible. And that passion that, uh, and that passion for studying, you know, primates, do you think that that's only grown since you first began? Yeah. I mean, I think I had an unrealistic set of expectations about what it would be like to go and study primates when I was 14 years old, unsurprisingly. Mm -hmm. um, but it turns out that I think a lot of the, the hard parts along the way and the, the confusing bits or the like frustrations make when it actually works a lot more satisfying than mm -hmm. um, if everything sort of moved smoothly along a linear path. Although sometimes that would be really nice too. Right. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I... I still really love the science and I love the questions, but I also love that I'm like in the middle of the forest following around monkeys. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're nearing the end of the year. What are your uh, upcoming plans? Um, well, I have a, the Northeastern Evolutionary Primatology Conference or NEEP is coming up this, this coming weekend. So I have a bunch of students who will be presenting. Cool. And other than that, I'm in the throes of the academic job market. So I'm mostly just trying really hard to get a job for next year. Oh, okay. Well, good luck. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, and, and when you're not applying for jobs and you're not uh, analyzing your data, what are you doing in your spare time? Um, I have been trying to prioritize reading again, like reading just for fun. Mm -hmm. um, and so... <laughs> I've recently started, and this is something I never thought I would enjoy doing, but I really have started enjoying watching car racing. Oh, okay. Yes. Cool. So trying to learn more about cars and why watching car racing is fun. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> you post about this on uh, social media? Um, I haven't yet because I feel like I'm at the very, very like <laughs> beginning of understanding anything about it. So. Mm -hmm. I'll wait to dip my toes in until I know a little bit more. Oh, okay. Well, um, and, and speaking of, uh, is there somewhere that people can find you online if they want to ask you any questions? Yeah. So I am on Twitter at Diana underscore monkey. Those are the monkeys I, I did my dissertation research mm -hmm. on. 
Um, and that's probably the easiest place to find me. Um, and then my website is erinelizkane.net. So I have links to publications and stuff there. Wonderful. Uh, and uh, as you might know, because you've listened to some episodes before, I usually ask the guest for a hashtag. Can you think of a fun hashtag for this episode? Um, I guess Michelle probably took poop science already. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, you did talk about about the urine quite a lot. That's true. We could we could have this be poop and urine science. <laughs> <laughs> that might be too long. So if you just want to do pee science, that is acceptable. <laughs> okay, well, well, poop, poop and urine science or pee science, whichever one you want to use, <laughs> listeners. Um, we are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at Arcanant Pod. You can also find the podcast uh, and new episodes on Arcanant.com iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you find podcasts. I just want to take the opportunity to thank the patrons who keep the show going every week. To find out more about the Patreon program, then go to patreon.com slash arcananthpod. Erin, this has been great. Do you have any uh, closing messages, any closing thoughts? No, I just want to thank you so much for uh, chatting with me. This is a really nice way to start my week off, and I'm excited to hear more about all your other guests. Oh, well, me too. Me too. Uh, I've really enjoyed this as well. I will speak to you soon. All right. Sounds good. Take care. Thank you so much, Aaron. And listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.